Good evening. Uh, welcome to the 136th session of the Aristotelian Society. Uh, I'm the outgoing president, David Papineau, and it's my pleasant duty to introduce the incoming president, Adrian Moore, who will give the 107th presidential address. So if you like, you can infer for the, that for the first 29 years, they didn't have presidents, or if they did, they didn't give addresses. Uh, I've known Adrian for many years myself. We overlapped in Cambridge in the mid-1980s when he was a junior research fellow at King's College, Cambridge. After that, he moved to St. Hughes in Oxford, where he was a tutorial fellow and a university lecturer from 1988, and then in 2004 became a, a professor of the University of Oxford. Many of you will know him from his book, The Infinite, 1990, we all learned much, much from. Since then, he's published another, a number of other books, most recently, uh, The Evolution of Modern Metaphysics, Making Sense of Things. Uh, this evening, he's going to talk to us about being, university, and logical syntax. Thank you, Adrian. Well, thank you uh, very much for that introduction, David. It's a great honour to be president of the Aristotelian Society, and I'm very grateful to the Executive Committee of the Aristotelian Society for conferring that honour on me. There are three strikingly different groups of philosophers with whom a title such as this, being Univocity and Logical Syntax, is liable to resonate especially loudly. Analytic metaphysicians, historians of medieval philosophy and students of post-structuralism, or more specifically, students of the work of Deleuze. I shall say a little in connection with all three, but I shall say most in connection with the first and the third, whose concerns I hope to illuminate by discussing them in tandem with one another. Now, prima facie, their concerns are quite different. Analytic metaphysicians have long been exercised by questions about what exists. Do mathematical entities exist, for example? Do wholes exist? And the more analytic metaphysicians have grappled with these questions, the more self-conscious they have become about what they're up to. And there is accordingly a thriving branch of analytic metaphysics, sometimes referred to as meta-metaphysics, whose aim is to clarify what is at stake in addressing such questions. How far is it a matter of ascertaining the human independent constitution of reality? And how far a matter of settling on a way of speaking? perhaps even settling on an interpretation of the verb exist. And the concerns within analytic metaphysics of this self-conscious kind are primarily semantic, epistemological, or methodological. Now, not so Deleuze's concerns... Deleuze resurrects a medieval debate that arises even given an inventory of all the things that exist. Suppose we have such an inventory, never mind for the time being what might have been required to compile it. There is a question on which the medieval debate turns about the nature of the things in this inventory. One way to put the question is as follows. 
Are any of these things so different in kind from ordinary things, such as snakes and apples, that our very talk of the being of the former has to be understood differently from our talk of the being of the latter? And this is really a debate about transcendence. Another way to put the question is this. Do any of these things enjoy a radical transcendence or an absolute transcendence? The concerns that motivate this question are more characteristic of mainstream traditional ontology than those that motivate the analytic metaphysician's questions about how to determine what exists. They have their source in Aristotle, who recognised different senses of being corresponding to his different categories. And the tools that the medievals used in pursuing their debate were largely Aristotelian tools. But they had a very particular focus which gave their debate its distinctive medieval stamp. They were interested in the nature of God. Their debate was about whether God's transcendence relative to his creatures was so radical that no language, or at least no language of a certain basic kind that includes the language of being, could be used with the same meaning with respect to both. And if that were the case, whether it followed that any use of such language with respect to both must always involve brute equivocation or whether there was room for a more nuanced position whereby the literal use of such language with respect to God's creatures could be extended to an analogical use of such language with respect to God himself. And Deleuze's interest is a variant of this. He is interested in what it takes to make sense of everything as part of one and the same purely imminent reality. A reality that is free of any such absolute transcendence. What animates Deleuze's concerns? Well, all manner of things do, but he has two projects in particular that deserve special mention. One of these is to extend Heidegger's work on being. Heidegger drew a distinction between being and the entities that have it. The entities that have it are all the things that we can be given or all the things of which we can make sense. Their being is their very giveability or their very intelligibility. By drawing this distinction, Heidegger enabled being itself to become a distinct focus of attention a privilege which he argued traditional metaphysics had prevented it from enjoying. Not only that, he also contributed a great deal to our understanding of being. And Deleuze wants to enlarge that understanding. He thinks that Heidegger has helped us towards a unified account of being, and in particular, he thinks that Heidegger has helped us towards an account of being which, though it certainly acknowledges the many profound differences between entities, and indeed the many profound differences between their ways of being, does not cast any of them in the role of the absolutely transcendent, and does not involve any Aristotelian polysemy. Nevertheless, 
Deleuze thinks that Heidegger's investigations are importantly incomplete. It is not enough, in Deleuze's view, for an account of being to accommodate all these differences. It's not even enough for it to expose and articulate them all. If we are properly to understand what it is for everything to be imminent, then we must also understand how these differences themselves contribute to the fundamental character of being. We must acknowledge a kind of ontological priority that these differences enjoy over the entities between which they obtain, the entities whose being is under investigation, the things of which we can make sense. And for this, Deleuze thinks, we need to look beyond Heidegger. So that's the first of Deleuze's projects. The second project is somewhat more nebulous, but no less significant. Appeal to absolute transcendence can be used to evade all sorts of problems, both theoretical and practical. So, for example, many people turn to their belief in God to help them to acquiesce in suffering. And many of these, in turn, appeal to God's absolute transcendence to help them to address the question of how suffering can be part of God's plan. And their answer is that we cannot really understand how, since all talk of God, including talk of God's plan, is at most an analogical extension of talk that we can really understand. Well, in Deleuze's view, such appeals to absolute transcendence come too easily. Learning how to live without recourse to absolute transcendence is in large part an ethical exercise for Deleuze. It means learning how to confront all that we are given in such a way as to make sense of it in its own terms. Resisting the seductions of, as it may be, an inscrutable theodicy or an abstract teleology in whose transcendent terms all our afflictions are ultimately justified. So it's a non-escapist, life-affirming exercise. And the kernel of the second project is to think it through at the ontological level. Now, in the medieval debate, Duns Scotus repudiated absolute transcendence. He didn't deny that some of our basic talk about God has to be interpreted non-literally, but he did deny that it all does. That, for Duns Scotus as for Deleuze, allows such talk too much free reign. It makes it merely formulaic. And it means that we cannot have any real sense of what we're talking about when we indulge in it. And in particular, this must apply to our very talk of God's being. Duns Scotus accordingly championed the univocity of being. And Deleuze seeks to do likewise. He considers two broad approaches to this problem. One that he finds in Spinoza and one that he finds in Nietzsche. The first approach involves viewing being as an entity in its own right. Any mention of the being of any other entity is to be understood as a reference to this entity. Well, I say any mention of the being of any other entity. In fact, of course, um, uh, any mention of the being of being itself had better be included. 
And so in Spinoza, whose version of this approach Deleuze treats as more or less canonical, the role of being is assigned to an infinite substance in which everything that is, is. And that includes this very substance, which is in itself. Spinoza works hard on Deleuze's interpretation to keep all intimations of the absolute transcendence of this substance at bay. And he needs to work hard. The way in which he executes his project means that this substance is radically different in kind from any other entity. Its infinitude, if not its transcendence, is absolute. But Spinoza achieves his goal, at least on Deleuze's interpretation, by not only allowing his substance to express itself through its attributes, notably through thought and extension, the two of its attributes of which we are aware, but by allowing it to do so in just the same sense as any other entity. That is, in just the same sense as any of its modes, each of which likewise expresses the essence of this substance through one of the substance's attributes. So Spinoza is not only able to say that substance is extended, for example, he's able to say that it is extended in just the same sense in which Mount Everest is extended. There is no hint of absolute transcendence here. It is a further question, however, whether there is complete univocity of being, as Deleuze claims. The doctrine that any mention of the being of a thing is to be understood as a reference to one particular entity is already to be found in Aristotle. All that is, Aristotle writes, is related to one central point. And he goes on to insist that any mention of the being of a thing is to be understood as a reference to this point. And yet for Aristotle, this doctrine, so far from showing that there is a single sense of being precisely corroborates his view that there are different senses of being. He likens it to the doctrine that any mention of the healthiness of a thing is to be understood as a reference to health, where that, he urges, betokens different senses of healthiness. A healthy diet is a diet that is conducive to health. A healthy complexion, a complexion that is symptomatic of health. A healthy person, a person who enjoys health, and so on. The common reference to health in each of these cases shows only that the differences of sense are not brute ambiguities. They remain differences for all that. And similarly, on Aristotle's view, in the case of the term being. So what makes Aristotle and Spinoza, who both accept that any mention of the being of a thing is to be understood as a reference to one particular entity, arrive at such different conclusions? Well, for Aristotle, it is pretty much axiomatic that certain differences between things are great enough in themselves to preclude a single sense of being in application to those things. Spinoza, by contrast, at least on Deleuze's reading of him, is prepared to understand all differences between things, however great, as themselves constituting the character of being. The difference between Aristotle and Spinoza is thus a fundamental difference of approach. On the Spinozist approach, 
it's not just that any mention of the being of a thing is to be understood as a reference to one particular entity. Any mention of the multiplicity and diversity of things is to be understood as a reference to that entity, whose essence is expressed in the very differences between them. And this allows Spinoza to see being in the differences between things, rather as one sees a single image in the differences of hue, the differences of brightness, and the differences of location between the myriad different pixels that compose it. And it allows him to make sense of things as part of one and the same imminent reality by making integrated sense of what differentiates them. But Deleuze thinks that we can go further. For Spinoza still believed in one privileged, unified entity that is prior to all multiplicity, prior to all diversity, prior to all difference. Deleuze thinks that we can acknowledge the university of being without appeal to any such entity. If we deny that there is any such entity, we can understand any mention of the multiplicity and diversity of things entirely in its own terms and still make sense of things as part of one and the same purely imminent reality. Difference is itself the ultimate reality. Indeed, it is itself ever different, like an ever-changing image in which the only constancy is the change. Being can still be seen in the differences between things, but it no longer has any stable identity or overall unity of its own. It no longer has any independent status as an entity in its own right. And this is the second of the two approaches that Deleuze considers, the one that he finds in Nietzsche. And it is the Nietzschean approach that Deleuze favours. But on what grounds? On what grounds, for that matter, does he favour Spinoza's original preparedness to understand all differences as constituting the character of being in defiance of Aristotle's unpreparedness to do so? Nothing that I have said so far appears to forestall a simple standoff between Spinoza and Aristotle, nor perhaps between Nietzsche and Spinoza. So, of course, it's natural to look for arguments here, and relevant arguments are to be found. Nevertheless, they are not my primary concern. My primary concern is not with how the university of being can be established, it's with something more basic. It's with how the university of being can even properly be thought. Now, I hope that some of what I have said so far has helped in this respect. But in the next part of my essay, I want to recapitulate this material, but in a different form. A form that relates it back to some of the concerns of analytic metaphysicians and indeed of analytic philosophers more generally. And I begin with a matter that might initially appear quite unrelated. Wittgenstein, in his Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, draws a distinction between what he calls signs and what he calls symbols. Signs are the written marks or noises that we use to communicate. 
Symbols are signs together with their logico-syntactic use. And logical syntax is akin to ordinary grammar, but much deeper. So, for example, ordinary grammar associates the use of the word are, in human beings are animals, with the use of the word eat, in human beings eat animals. Logical syntax recognises differences between these, reflected in the fact that it makes sense to add to the latter sentence, but not to the former, including themselves. So you can sensibly say human beings eat animals, including themselves, but not human beings are animals, including themselves. Wittgenstein captures the relation between a sign and a symbol as follows. A sign is what can be perceived of a symbol. And he points out that one and the same sign can be common to two different symbols. So, for example, the word round is sometimes used as a noun to denote a slice of bread, sometimes as an adjective to indicate circularity. One sign two symbols. Now, I'm going to assume the following, that difference of logico-syntactic use is a difference of degree. Difference of logico-syntactic use is a difference of degree. In other words, one symbol can share more or less of its logico-syntactic use with another. Now, I don't claim that this doctrine is in the Tractatus itself. Whether it is, whether for that matter its negation is, and in either case how explicitly or implicitly, those are large exegetical issues that I shall put to one side, though of course we may come back to them in the discussion. So this is not exegesis. My aim is to make use of Wittgenstein's ideas at this point, not to rehearse them. But adopting this doctrine, the doctrine that we're talking about a difference of degree, seems to me the only plausible and interesting way of extending those ideas, or at least the only plausible and interesting way of extending them that subserves our current purposes. Now here's an illustration of the doctrine, the doctrine that we're talking about a difference of degree. The word round, as well as having the two meanings already indicated, is also sometimes used as a noun to denote a complete series of holes in golf. And this is yet another symbol, a third symbol, different from either of the other two. But it is less different from the other noun than it is from the adjective. And this can be seen in the following way. There are many meaningful sentences involving the word round, such as I had a round yesterday, in which the meaning of the rest of the sentence prevents the word round from functioning as an adjective but still allows it to function as either of the other two nouns. In other meaningful sentences, including sentences that build on this one, such as, I had a round yesterday and I had it toasted, the meaning of the rest of the sentence prevents the word round from functioning as one of those two nouns, but not as the other. However, there is no equivalent transverse ordering there's no meaningful sentence in which the meaning of the rest of the sentence prevents the word round from functioning as one of those two nouns, but still allows it to function either as the other noun or as the adjective. Now, are there any ambiguities that don't involve any difference of logico-syntactic use. Ambiguities that are, so to speak, simple differences of meaning. 
one's first thought is that there surely are. But on reflection, the matter seems less clear. Exact sameness of logico-syntactic use cuts very finely indeed. Very crudely speaking, if there were an ambiguity that involved no difference of logico-syntactic use, there would have to be two things such that whatever could be meaningfully said of one could be meaningfully said of the other. And who knows but that there are deep reasons of philosophical principle why this requirement could never be met. Considerable work in some or all of metaphysics, philosophical logic and philosophy of language would be needed to settle the issue. But here is a more tractable issue. Is it ever possible to expose an ambiguity without exposing any difference of logico-syntactic use? Well, this time there seems little room for doubt. Clearly it is. For it's possible to show that a word is ambiguous by producing a sentence involving the word, the rest of whose meaning is presumed given, and then pointing out that a single utterance of the sentence can be interpreted as true or as false, depending on how this particular word is construed. So, for example, imagine me saying I had a round yesterday on the morrow of a day on which I had a slice of toast but didn't so much as set foot on a golf course. A very plausible scenario in my own case. (laughs) Well, the word is thereby shown to be ambiguous even though the question of whether any difference of logico-syntactic use is involved is left open. Now, let's reconsider the univocity of being. And let us think of this issue as an issue about whether the word being and its various cognates are relevantly ambiguous. Anyone committed to the non-univocity of being would in these terms be committed to an ambiguity in the word being. But... The commitment would, I claim, be unsustainable unless the ambiguity could be exposed in a way other than that just described. So, in other words, the ambiguity would have to be and would have to be seen to be an ambiguity involving a difference of logico-syntactic use. That's the claim. Why? Why do I claim this? Well, unless the ambiguity in the word being involved a difference of logico-syntactic use, what rationale would there be for acknowledging different senses of the word being as opposed to acknowledging differences among the entities to which the unambiguous word being can be truly applied? Well, this is an old and familiar idea famously and marvellously captured by Quine in his book Word and Object. Quine is there concerned with a somewhat different issue, whether the terms true and exist are ambiguous. But his response to the claim that they are, that they are ambiguous, is essentially the same as the response that I am now recommending to the claim that being is non-logico-syntactically ambiguous. Quine writes, specifically in connection with the word true, and I quote, There are philosophers who stoutly maintain that true, said of logical and mathematical laws, and true, said of weather predictions or suspects' confessions, are two usages of an ambiguous word true. What mainly baffles me is the stoutness of their maintenance. What can they possibly count as evidence? Why not view true as unambiguous but very general? 
and recognize the difference between true logical laws and true confessions as a difference between logical laws and confessions. End of quote. And similarly, I submit, in the case of being. And note that acceding to a single sense of being in this way would not preclude, in fact would positively encourage, acknowledging different kinds of being corresponding to the various fundamental differences between entities. And this is why Heidegger, who is certainly keen to acknowledge different kinds of being, for example, those kinds of being that are peculiarly enjoyed by whose, and those kinds of being that are peculiarly enjoyed by what's, can nevertheless be considered a champion of the univocity of being. In linguistic terms, then, the doctrine of the non-univocity of being had better be construed as the doctrine that different uses of the word being differ in their logico-syntactic use. But this presents a challenge of its own, and the challenge is how to show that they differ in that way. The sheer fact that the word is used in linguistic contexts which themselves differ in their logico-syntactic use is not decisive. Consider, for example, these two contexts. That person is... and that tree is... Well, these differ in their logico-syntactic use... But it doesn't follow that the phrase exactly two metres in height, which can be meaningfully inserted into both, is logico-syntactically ambiguous. Not granted the assumption that difference of logico-syntactic use is a difference of degree. And of course that was the assumption that I helped myself to earlier. So similarly... The fact that we can talk about the being of that person and the being of that tree doesn't show that being is logico-syntactically ambiguous. Now the difficulty is exacerbated by the following fact. The simple way of exposing an ambiguity which we considered earlier, namely Producing a sentence involving the ambiguous word and pointing out that a single utterance of it can be interpreted as true or as false, leaving open whether the word is logico-syntactically ambiguous. That expedient has no counterpart when it comes to showing that a word is logico-syntactically ambiguous. It's of no avail to produce a sentence involving the logico-syntactically ambiguous word and then to point out that a single utterance of this sentence can be interpreted as meaningful or as meaningless. Provided that interpreting an utterance as meaningless is not a contradiction in terms, then this is something that one can do to any utterance whatsoever. One can always construe some word in the utterance as occurring without either its standard meaning or any other meaning. It cuts no ice at all where ambiguity is concerned. Given an utterance of the sentence, her brooch is round, for example, we can construe round as occurring without either its standard adjectival meaning or any other meaning. But that's quite irrelevant to the use of round as a noun. Nothing about this sentence is relevant to the use of the word round as a noun, given the meaning of the rest of the sentence. The meaning of the rest of the sentence precisely precludes the use of round as a noun here. I'm not suggesting that there's no way of exposing a logico-syntactic ambiguity. 
In the case of the word round, it's perfectly acceptable simply to point out that the word has both a nominal use and an adjectival use. Or if there are certain theoretical purposes at hand for which further detail is required, either in connection with the word round or in connection with the difference between nouns and adjectives, then we can go into just such further detail as is required. Even in cases where the difference of logico-syntactic use is less marked, as it would be in the case of the word being, and where the tools for characterising the difference are not ready to hand, as they might not be in the case of the word being, we can do what we did where the two uses of round as a noun were concerned. Produce a sentence involving the ambiguous word, I had a round yesterday, together with a context within which the sentence can be meaningfully embedded under one interpretation, but not under the other, and I had it toasted. The problem, however, is that this would be a way of exposing the ambiguity only to those who were already disposed to see it. If there were genuine controversy about whether the word had more than one logico-syntactic use, as there is in the case of the word being, no such expedient would help to settle the matter. The denier of logico-syntactic ambiguity could simply deny that embedding the given sentence in the given context resulted in any relevant meaninglessness. The advocate of the non-univocity of being may now appear to be in trouble because I've been arguing on the one hand that the relevant ambiguity in being would have to be exposed as a logico-syntactic ambiguity while suggesting, on the other hand, that there would be no exposing it as such that didn't essentially involve preaching to the converted. But actually, the trouble is just as great for an advocate of the univocity of being. Insofar as there's a kind of surd in what one of them wants to assert, there's a kind of surd in what the other wants to deny. And this is why there's an issue not merely concerning how the univocity of being can be established, but concerning how it can even be properly thought. What can an advocate of the univocity of being do to impress the doctrine on himself as well as on others beyond blankly <coughs> proclaiming that being has just one meaning? Well, one option that such a person might take is to identify being as an entity in its own right and to insist that any talk of the being of a thing is a reference to this entity. But as we saw earlier, this would not be enough. An Aristotelian would insist that any talk of the healthiness of a thing is a reference to health but would deny that healthiness has just one logico-syntactic use. The advocate of the university of being would need to insist further that any talk of the being of a thing is not just a reference to this one entity, but a reference of one particular logico-syntactic kind to this entity. But now there would be another impasse of sorts, the Aristotelian would see the differences between the things to which the word being can be truly applied as simply too great for that to be a viable option. The most effective way for the advocate of the university of being to evade this sort of Aristotelian response is by being preemptive. Given various things to which the word being can be truly applied, and given the various differences between them, 
The advocate of the university of being can say that precisely one of the functions of the word is to signify these differences. That for these things to be is for them to differ in the ways that they do. That difference is itself the fundamental character of being. And there is then no question of two things differing to such an extent that the word being has no single logico-syntactic use in relation to both. The very semantics of the word forestalls this. The word being is to be understood in such a way that whenever there are things that differ from one another, even if they differ so much that there is no single logico-syntactic way of making reference to all of them, this word can be truly applied to them in a single sense and therefore with a single logico-syntactic use. One way to regard the shift from thinking of being as an entity in its own right to thinking of difference as the character of being is as follows. It's a shift in the attempt to think of the word being as having just one logico-syntactic use, from modelling the word on a noun to modelling it on a verb. So long as the word was modelled on a noun, so long as the word was conceived as standing in an invariant semantic relation to one particular entity, there was an issue about whether the being of things, sorry, whether talk of the being of things could do suitable justice to all the ways in which things differ from one another. For even if such talk could secure the university of being, how could it do so except at the price of introducing fresh concerns, if not the same concerns, about the university of participation in being? And if it did introduce such concerns, how could the obvious regress be blocked except by locating the really important university in precisely that differing of things from one another which was giving pause? But the Greek regress never even starts and there are no such concerns if the word being is modelled on a verb and is conceived as expressing such differing in the first place. So what we have been witnessing, or at least what we have been witnessing if Deleuze's reading of Nietzsche and Spinoza is correct, is the power of the Nietzschean verb over the Spinozist noun or the power of Nietzschean differing over Spinozist substance. Spinozist substance is an entity that differs from other entities in various ways. Nietzschean differing is not an entity at all. It cannot be said to differ from other entities. It cannot be said to differ from anything in the way in which entities differ from one another. On the other hand, it can in a way be said to differ, for there is a sense in which in the differing of entities from one another, differing itself is ever different. But how can it be said to differ if it cannot be said to differ from anything in the way in which entities differ from one another? Well, one way is through a break with traditional grammar it can be said to differ from itself. And this is the line taken by Deleuze in his exposition and defence of the university of being. Now, as I've tried to make clear, I have not myself been concerned to defend this doctrine and still less to defend the associated exegesis I've been concerned with what it takes to think the doctrine. But I have had a more particular aim too, 
to connect what it takes to think the doctrine with issues that exercise analytic philosophers. Not that this kind of linkage is likely to win any converts. Just the opposite, in fact. It's likely to crystallise alternative ways of thinking in the minds of analytic philosophers. So many analytic philosophers will recoil from unadorned talk of anything's differing from itself by demanding some kind of relativization, such as that which allows for talk of Ellen's differing from herself by being both a child and an adult, a child then and an adult now. Others will recoil no less from relativised talk of something's different from itself, and they will deny that there is strictly any identity between that girl and this woman. Again, many analytic philosophers will insist that the word differing, as it occurs in the sentence, differing is not an entity, functions as a singular term and an entity being nothing but what is picked out by a singular term, that the sentence is self-stultifying. You just can't say that differing is not an entity. And they're then liable to conclude that if differing is anything at all, then it is an entity. Others will take a leaf out of each of Frege's and the early Wittgenstein's books. The problem that I just mentioned is obviously reminiscent of the problem of the concept of a horse that Frege grappled with. And they will acknowledge the self-stultification in the sentence, differing is not an entity, but they will conclude that there's an insight here to which the sentence is gesturing, but which cannot strictly be expressed. And those who take this last option will, of course, be manifesting an element of conciliation. How close they will be to convergence of view with any champions of the university of being is going to depend in part on how comfortable any champion of the university of being is with this kind of appeal to the inexpressible. And in some cases, I submit, very comfortable. But that is not the point. The point is not about convergence of view. It's not even about rapprochement. The point is about dialogue. Some analytic philosophers might eventually feel at home with these ways of thinking. Some might even eventually be persuaded by Deleuze to subscribe to the university of being. But first, they have to be able to listen to what he is saying. Thank you.